Motion with RoboHub, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Before we get started today, we just wanted to say if you like what we do here at the RoboHub podcast and would like to support us, check out our Patreon campaign on robohub.org forward slash podcast, where we ask listeners to pledge small, regular donations to help us produce more exciting and engaging content. Like today's episode, where we'll be discovering how birds are helping one researcher in the UK to understand gait and develop better legged robots. Monica Daly, from the Royal Veterinary College in London, analyzes the gates of birds to understand the mechanical principles underlying gait, such as energetic economy, mechanical limits, and how to avoid injury. She studies legged locomotion from birds because they are a diverse set of animals that use a variety of gates, depending on their morphology and surroundings. She uses robotics to test her hypothesis about legged locomotion. Our interviewer Audrey spoke to Dr. Daly about her experiments with birds, how her results are used in the design of legged systems, and about her experience with interdisciplinary collaborations. Hi, welcome to the podcast. Hi. Would you introduce yourself? My name is Monica Daly, and I'm a senior lecturer at the Royal Veterinary College in England. Would you tell me about your research and what motivates it? I'm a biologist and I specialize in comparative biomechanics. We're interested in understanding um, how animals move through different environments and how their morphology influences locomotion. So I, in particular, study a lot of running birds like ostriches and how they how they do uh, both steady and non-steady locomotion tasks. So how they run very rapidly, maneuver, run over uneven terrain, and how the control differs in different environments. Mm -hmm. And how does this relate to robots? Well, I'm really interested in the field of legged robots because the principles of uh, bipedal gates, so walking and running gates that you and I use, are very similar between um, any legged system. So a legged robot um, with two legs uses the same gates as a human, walking and running gates, but also sometimes hopping and skipping gates. And then birds are a diverse group of animals that also use the same kinds of gates, walking, running, hopping, and skipping gates. So the combination of robotics and uh, biology allows us to understand the basic mechanical principles underlying these gates. What makes these gates um, cost-effective? What minimizes the energy cost of movement? Um, what are the mechanical limits? What kinds of um, risks do animals take when they're running over uneven ground? How do they avoid injury when running over very complex terrain? Things mm -hmm. like that. Gotcha. And so when we think we understand an idea, we can put it on a robot, and we can see if it actually has similar movement to... Yeah, Say birds that's the idea. Kind of so, so we can test our ideas? The way I got into this intersection between robotics and biomechanics is that I was initially studying um, steady locomotion in animals. But the problem with steady and locomotion is... Steady means just... Just moving at the constant speed on perfectly level terrain. So if you were running on a treadmill, right, or mm. walking on a treadmill, um, we can understand uh, lots of important mechanisms for 
economic locomotion. So how do you minimize the cost of locomotion from these steady cases? So when you're walking on a treadmill, you can be very economic because you don't have to worry about uh, avoiding collisions or moving over bumps and things like that. Uh, but we didn't really have any tools to understand non-steady behaviors. And because we could, for example... And non-steady behavior, that's when you're walking over anything that's not a treadmill? Yeah, so anything that causes you to have to change your movement pattern. You could call a non-steady behavior. And there are different kinds of non-steady behavior. Mm -hmm. So I decide um, I see an obstacle, I want to walk around it. That's one kind of non-steady behavior. Mm -hmm. Or you might uh, be walking down the street and you forgot to look down and there's a curb and you suddenly have a big step down. Mm -hmm. That's a perturbation to your steady gait. Uh, we don't really under we didn't have any tools to understand the mechanisms animal use, animals use during these non-steady behaviors. Mm -hmm. So robotics allows you to rigorous, rigorously test hypotheses about how animals do this. So you can say, I think that it look it acts like a bouncing mass spring system, and it just keeps on behaving like that and passively stabilizes. That's one hypothesis. Mm -hmm. You can build a robot that does exactly that and see how well it does. Mm -hmm. And you'll find that it doesn't do particularly well in very complex environments. Then you have to add complexity. So we can then iterate on this process of having a, an idea about how animals do it, testing it in a robot and see how well it works. I see. Now, why do you use birds in your experiments? Birds are a really useful animal model for bipedal locomotion. Uh, people think of birds as flying animals, and they're really, you know, so people often say, well, why don't you study flight? But uh, in birds, bipedal locomotion predates flight. So theropod dinosaurs were bipedal, so they have a 250 million year history of bipedal locomotion and incredible diversity. So you've got birds that live in just about every terrestrial ecosystem on the planet, from Antarctica to the most, you know, alpine, high alpine conditions to deserts, hot deserts, and all of them use bipedal locomotion for some part of their life history. But they also have incredible diversity in their leg morphology. So although they're all bipeds, some have very short legs, some have extremely long legs, some are using them to swim in water, some of them are using to climb up cliff edges. So we can look at this diversity in locomotor ecology and morphology and understand how that morphological design might allow them to be better adapted for different kinds of terrains. Mm -hmm. And so what kind of experiments have you been running with birds? So for the past 10 years, I've been really focusing on uh, the strategies for stability in uneven terrain. So I've been doing, the first experiment I did was this um, unexpected, unexpected pothole experiment mm -hmm. where I trained birds to run on a level treadmill, or, or a level runway, sorry. Yep. So the birds were running across a level runway, and then randomly I had a, a board that I could remove that was disguised by tissue paper. And so mm -hmm. they would be running along, and their foot would just break through the tissue paper, and they didn't actually have ground the ground was actually several centimeters lower than expected. So this was analogous to the situation where you suddenly step off a curb but that you didn't see, right? Mm -hmm. So we were looking at what are the mechanisms for stabilizing for this unexpected type of perturbation? How do you stabilize your body? Um, from this, we 
found something really interesting was that the body motion of a bird encountering this perturbation Mm -hmm. was almost indistinguishable from their steady gait. Mm. So they had remarkable stability in their body motion. But if you look at their leg, there were dramatic differences. They rapidly extend their leg into a hole to help um, reject that disturbance. So they can, because birds have a relatively crouched posture during their normal gait, Mm -hmm. they can extend their leg when they encounter uneven terrain. And these holes are like half of leg leg length, right? About 50% of their leg length. So it's pretty extreme, and it's something that humans wouldn't be able to do in the same way because of our leg morphology, because we run on straight legs, Mm -hmm. basically. Let's see. I want. I want to talk about birds just a little bit. Yeah. What is it? What's involved in training a bird to run across a thing? Is, what kind of birds are you using? Is it ostriches? Are they pigeons? Mostly, I use guinea fowl. Guinea fowl. Guinea so fowl are a ground bird from originally from Africa, but they've been domesticated for as pets and also for food use, especially in Europe. They're popular. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're kind of like chickens. They're right? kind of a chicken-sized bird. They are, have a bald head and a really ugly sort of like wattle crest, kind of like a turkey-like head, um, and their polka dot body, mm-hmm. and they are very loud. They mm. have this um, alarm call they make when they're startled, so they <laughs> make a lot of noise, but they're very good runners. So in their natural environments, they prefer to walk and run everywhere they go. They can travel 20 to 30 miles while foraging during the day. They live in groups, and they kind of do follow the leader locomotion where you kind of see them all running in a row. Yeah. So when startled, they tend to run rather than fly away, and they tend to only fly just to go get up into trees to roost and yep. things like that. Gotcha. And then how does it look like for you to train them? They're pretty easy to train, and that's why we you use them. them so run, we or? usually, to start with, you might startle them a little bit, but you really don't want them to be running as if they're panicked or scared. We you want them want to them be running in a natural way. So we try to create uh, an environment they're comfortable in. So there's a little bit of bird psychology that goes on. (laughs) We have a little um, box at either end of the runway that has food and water, and it's nice and dark and quiet. And then we open that on one side, and they run to the other side. Hmm. And then we close it and let them rest for a while, and we repeat that process. So after a while, they know if they just run to the other side of the runway, they'll be in their nice, safe Hmm. box again. And after repeating this, they become very used to it, and you can get lots of data very quickly from them. Gotcha. And then how long can a bird be... How, how long can you work with a single bird? We try not to work with them for too long in any given day. Because I don't mean of, per day, but like, per, you know, is it like a year? Oh, well, we have a flock or? of guinea fowl that we hatched, and they've been... Um, we keep them out on the, in the countryside mm-hmm. um, because the campus is a field station out in the... Um, in the villages of England. Yeah. <laughs> and we've kept this flock for two years now. We might keep them for another year or so. And then Indeed. once they get a little bit older, we adopt them out as pets to local people. Wonderful. Yeah. Okay. And then, so what are some of the differences between bird legs and human legs? The most common observable difference that you see is that birds apparently have a backwards knee. So people often say that. It's not actually the knee. More like the ankle. It's the ankle. It's a modified ankle joint because birds are actually standing on their toes. So they effectively stand on three toes Mm -hmm. forward. Most birds, um, ostriches have reduced toes, but most of them have three toes they stand on and then extended um, and fused metatarsal bones, which form an extra segment in the limb. So they do have a knee that's 
but it's usually hidden under feathers, so you don't see it externally when you're looking at the bird. Mm-hmm. Effectively, they have an extra joint in their leg compared to humans. Gotcha. Okay, and then back to this perturbation experiment. So you would have these little guinea fowl run, and they would think they're running, and they would run on tissue cloth, and then their leg would go through. It was like half their leg length. And then you observed, what did you see? So we measured both their body motions and their leg motions and Mm -hmm. the amount of force they exert against the ground when they're doing this behavior. Yes. And what we observed is that their body motions were very stable. They didn't even... Uh, change speed during this. So their average speed across the runway was identical to the level trials. Mm -hmm. And the mechanism that they used to do this was rapid changes in their leg posture. So when you're running along, you have to um, turn on your muscles in anticipation of the upcoming stance phase, right? Mm -hmm. So because there's time delays involved in your muscles activating and contracting to develop force. So you're running along, you know that you're, you anticipate that you're coming in contact with ground, your brain and spinal cord send the signals to turn the muscles on before the actual event of contact. There's like a 30 to 40 millisecond delay between the signals being sent and the muscle actually developing force. So you have to anticipate. So what happens with these birds, and like humans, they have to turn their muscles on early. If suddenly the ground's not there and there's no resistance, those muscles are still on and contracting. And so what happens is they rapidly extend their leg into the hole Mm -hmm. because the muscles not encountering resistance now um, extend the joints very rapidly. So this is uh, an example of how the control interacts with the mechanics to create a self-stabilizing response to reject perturbations. Mm -hmm. What makes it so the leg extends? Is it the spinal column? Is it the brain sending a message that says extend now because there's no ground there? It's not neural control at all in this case. It's completely mechanical. It's totally mechanical. So your gastrocnemius muscle, your calf muscle, um, it crosses your knee and ankle joint, right? So um, if you turn it on, um, you would normally be co-activating muscles to keep the knee joint Mm -hmm. in a relatively fixed position, and you would extend your ankle. Mm -hmm. But during stance, you actually are contracting this muscle, what's called isometrically. So when you're running, mm-hmm. um, you kind of bounce along like a, you know, you're bouncing on a pogo stick. You contract this muscle in an X kind of like a spring. So it's just resisting the load mm-hmm. of your body weight. Um, and so it doesn't actually do a lot of uh, like extension per se. It's really just there to act more like a spring. Mm-hmm. But if suddenly the ground's not there to resist the the forces of that muscle contracting, if you are not running and you contract your calf muscle, Mm -hmm. then you rapidly extend your ankle joint. So it all depends on what, you know, how much you've turned on your muscle compared to the load that it actually encounters. Mm -hmm. And if the muscle is turned, so in this case with the running bird, Mm -hmm. it's turned its muscle on the same amount it normally would Mm -hmm. for level running. Yeah. But because suddenly the load, uh, the resistance of the ground is not there, the action of the muscle changes dramatically. So it, mm. rather than just uh, allowing a spring-like elastic energy cycling for the stance, it rapidly extends the joints. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So if I understand, they are in the motion of running. There is no ground there. And so what happens is they continue the motion and it results in rapid extending of the leg and then they continue running on their extended leg kind of 
they continue for that whole cycle, that right? Whole one step yeah. on an extended leg, yep. and then the next leg just continues on, yeah. right? So Not then remarkable. they just continue running. And if we've measured their, the muscle activation signals for this mm-hmm. uh, during this behavior too, so we can um, use a, a EMG electrodes, which mm-hmm. you, you know, in human you can just place them on the surface of your skin and measure muscle activities. Yeah. So we've done this for birds as well. Mm-hmm. And we can show that the muscle, the actual neural signal that's telling the muscle to turn on doesn't change at all during this behavior. Wow. What kind of other data are you getting from the birds? So well, I... slow motion yeah. videos. So slow motion video, ground reaction forces, mm-hmm. and then we do muscle recordings as well. So mm. I specialized in looking at uh, the the actual contraction patterns of muscles during these non-steady behaviors. Mm-hmm. So how do the muscles change their dynamics during steady, you know, level overground locomotion versus perturbation responses like this? Mm-hmm. And so now this knowledge of how the leg extends, have we applied that to robots? Do you have collaborations that are exploring this? Yes, we have. So um, I've been mostly collaborating with Jonathan Hurst's group with their robot Atreus. Mm-hmm. Um, so we we looked we were that's using at Oregon State. that's at Oregon State University mm-hmm. and it's a bipedal robot that doesn't look much like either a human or a bird but is designed to really mimic the basic gait patterns of walking and running in either in, in any animal and we used some of these principles that by um, having a sort of very consistent limb cycling pattern that is that allows that that controls the leg posture you can get very robust response to perturbations so they uh so what we did was um lots of other perturbations on birds so that was the first experiment Mm -hmm. we did we also looked at well what do they do if they can see the obstacle coming what Mm -hmm. do we do what you know does it really differ so we did lots of different kinds of perturbations and we found that they didn't actually change their behavior much. Wow, knowing of it and not Whether knowing or not of they it? knew. Wow. Yeah. So this very sort of they they basically it's like the roadrunner cartoon. You yeah. know, the roadrunner's famous for just cycling its legs very fast and go over and going over anything. Whatever. Yes. That's what birds actually do. So they <laughs> cycle their legs very fast Maybe and then on to something. Yes. Yeah. So <laughs> um, you can then design a control algorithm for a robot based on that idea. Mhm. Okay, what are some of the other perturbation studies you've done, and then what have been the results from them, I suppose? So we've, uh, we've done some that are obstacle negotiation studies. Mm-hmm. So this is particularly challenging because stumbling becomes a problem. If you're not lifting your leg high enough, you would then you know, stub your toe and stumble. Mm-hmm. Um, so at some point, you're going to have to anticipate so that you can make sure that you don't stumble over an obstacle. So we looked at birds running over obstacles ranging from 10% up to 50% of their leg length in height. Mm-hmm. And normally their gait wouldn't allow them to negotiate something that high because they would. that requires really lifting your, your toes up high to get ground clearance. Mm-hmm. So um, when they see, when there's an obstacle, they of course do need to look ahead and anticipate. So we were interested in how does that, um, how does this anticipatory response Mm -hmm. integrate with these intrinsic mechanics that we saw before. Yes. So 
when they're negotiating obstacles, they use basically what's a, a three-step response. So they don't start changing their behavior until one step before the obstacle. Okay. And then they sort of vault or launch themselves up onto the obstacle a little bit. And then they use their passive mechanisms to come back down again. So the step down is very similar to we saw in our per, you know, unexpected perturbation. Mm-hmm. But they use... Uh, one step before the obstacle to sort of get themselves safely onto the obstacle. Gotcha. Okay. So they load themselves to negotiate the obstacle and then recover and resume normal running. Right. So within three steps, you Mm. wouldn't be able to tell their gait from a steady, you know, gait. Okay. And so, and this informs controller design on robots. It does because it's, it helps us understand how far do we need to look ahead if we're using integrating things like vision and steering with our control algorithms for the gate. Um, we need to know how, exactly how far do we need to look ahead to safely negotiate obstacles. Mm-hmm. And it turns out for humans and birds, it's not as far as you might think. It's only about two steps. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. Now, a thing I'm interested in is collaborating... Um, with roboticists being a biologist. Mm -hmm. Would you tell me a bit about forming collaborations outside of your domain, your immediate domain? Uh, Yeah, sure. So I really got interested in the collaborations because after my first um, experiments in non-steady locomotion, when I did this, you know, um, unexpected hole, pothole experiment on birds... We could describe what the bird did, but we couldn't really say anything definitive about what that meant for stability or injury risk or some of these other features of performance. And what we needed was some good models to really rigorously test hypotheses. And I wasn't, from a biologist background, I really didn't have the tools to do that. So that's when I started reaching out to people who were in the engineering domain to help me develop simulations of the bird gate to help us understand well if you take a, a mechanical model of the sim system and you optimize the control strategy for, you know, to return as rapidly as possible to a steady gate, what would that look like? And then we can use these models to really test hypotheses or even suggest new experiments to do on the birds. Um, so I initially started this sort of interaction with robotics engineers at University of Michigan. So I did, went, decided to go for my postdoc to sort of an, an engineering environment and start talking to these two engineers mm-hmm. about these was things. Was it Art? Quo's group. I was actually working with Dan Ferris and mm. Art Quo. Dan Ferris was in kinesiology, but he was doing rehabilitation robotics. Yes. So I was uh, working with some of their students and postdocs on the um, robotic exoskeletons that provide push-off assistance to help um, spinal, patients with spinal cord injuries to, mm. to recover walking gait. And I started interacting with the people in Art's Quo, in Art Quo's group who were developing um, models of walking mostly in humans, but they were very um, general models of walking dynamics. And it was really challenging at first because I didn't have the, the language or the technical background. So I had to spend a lot of time just building up the language to speak to these people, let alone actually do the simulations and things like that. So mm-hmm. I spent a, you know, most of my postdoc years really just learning 
um, learning the language of the engineering field and bio-inspired robotics and learning how to write the code to do simple simulations myself so that I could use these tools to understand the animal behavior. Mm -hmm. That led me, I then went on to my current faculty position, so back more into the biology domain, and I found that I still really wanted to develop those collaborations. So uh, that's, I, I went to visit um, Alk Eastbert's lab in, at EPFL in Switzerland, mm-hmm. where um, to develop some collaborative proposals. So we were trying to combine simple models of locomotion with um, central pattern generator style control models. Um, and we developed some proposals and collaborations there. But at the time, they were not actually using any sensory feedback in their specific robot applications. So it was almost too early. I developed a really good network of uh, collaborators and contacts, but the work didn't really take off. Sometimes you kind of, you find that the fields are not quite ready to collaborate yet because we know animals use sensory feedback and they also have central pattern generators or rhythm generators in their spinal cords and both play important roles in the control of the system. But the approaches that were being used at that time didn't really combine those two. They usually used one or the other. Now it's kind of coming to the point where those ideas have matured in that field and it's a really good time for us to start collaborating in those things again because now we can look at, well, what if you have different control models, what are the implications of that for stability and the you know, strategies you use to move over different kinds of terrain? Mm-hmm. And wrapping up, what advice do you have for someone who's beginning a career in research and wants to have cross-disciplinary collaborations? Well, I think you have to have the courage to put yourself out there and, you know, have, t- have the patience to really learn the language of another field. It's been really uh, powerful in my career to, to do that. It's humbling because you do feel uh, very intimidated by the jargon of a new field often, I think. But we also, biologists, have their own jargon. So sometimes we're basically talking past each other. So taking the time to just really um, start a dialogue and have patience to develop that dialogue over a period of time, I think is really important. Specific advice, um, I think networking is incredibly important. So going to conferences that are outside your field and meeting people and taking the time to, you know, talk to them. So it's really it's really hard to ex- plan these things because it really comes from that you find someone that has a synergy of ideas and that and then you kind of develop that over time so all right thank you thanks and that's the end of today's interview as always you can find lots more interesting content and all our past episodes at robohub.org where you can also check out our Patreon campaign that we mentioned earlier, including our latest fundraising goal, where we're asking you to help us cover the Human-Robot Interaction Conference in Chicago.
Our podcast will, of course, always be free, and we wouldn't want anyone to have to skip their morning coffee to support us. But if you are able to spare just a few dollars a month to support us on Patreon, we'd be really appreciative of your help. We'll be back in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye. Motion with Robohub, the podcast for news and views on robotics.